0: when we look at the evolution of pet food of course uh, at at first uh, pets were just uh, gradually entering our household uh, uh, or uh, were kept for a a certain purpose and we just fed them something and they usually have to find part of their food by themselves and we gradually developed uh, in in the recent past like kibbles and canned food and, and things like that and we made a lot of mistakes in the beginning by not knowing the true nutrition physiology of those animals.
1: A whole new era of communication in the pet food industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds in the global pet food industry, right in your pocket. And what's best, you can listen to all of them while driving, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. Welcome to the Pet Food Science Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and all that's working in the pet food industry. We're here with Dr. Corbet today, and we're going to discuss current research from around the world, in this case, the Netherlands, and how it might apply to innovative pet products and, and the pet food science industry. So I'm your host, Dennis Jewell. And, and had the distinct pleasure again of speaking with Dr. Corbey. So we are, we're going to talk about uh, pet nutrition, and I wonder if we could just start if you would tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into the position, maybe what you're what you're currently doing there.
0: Yeah, thank you very much, Dennis, for this nice question. Um, my career made several jumps, uh, but from the second year in vet school, when I was in Utrecht, I decided to become a veterinary nutritionist. So I was very much intrigued by the subject of nutrition, and I was a bit disappointed on the way it was taught to us. So I thought I could do a better job to make more sexy <laughs> and uh, make it more appealing to our students, and uh, I had my thoughts about it and really wanted hands-on to work with nutrition. So when I graduated from vet school, uh, the nutrition professor at that time thought I was the stubborn person who thought he could do better. So he didn't really see me in that matter. Um, so, yeah, I, I jumped into a different career as uh, being a general practitioner uh, at a practice, uh, which was close to watch. And then um, I decided to start my own practice because also in practice I saw things happening which I thought I could do better. So I, I started my own private practice. And then at a certain time, uh, there was a new nutrition professor in Utrecht. And uh, there was a position for a residency. And Then I, I jumped in. So despite having my own private practice just up and running, I, I decided to go for a nutrition residency. And then followed by a PhD, then I sold my practice and, and stayed in academia uh, because I really liked uh, the teaching, doing research, and also the clinical work, which is, is perfectly at the academia
1: position. Well, that's great. I, I wonder if you could sort of talk, you know, I look at your research and you've done done a fairly broad uh, research, nutrition research, but certainly you've, you've done some Vitamin D, calcium work, which is there's a lot of interest in that, and 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 a lot of interest in obesity, and you've you've done that. And then we haven't talked in this podcast much about the importance of that early nutrition. And that paper you wrote, are you were a co-author on where the looking at the the uh, effects of maintaining uh, mother's milk uh, for a while? Those are all interesting subjects. I wonder if you might just talk about what you've seen as interest in your your, you know, recent career. What you would, what you would like to to tell the people about that that you know is exciting in pet nutrition today from your perspective.
0: So, if I want to talk about everything, I think is exciting about pet food, we need uh, several days or months. And I... <laughs> well, no,
1: well, we'll plan that. We'll plan that. We'll, okay. we'll, we'll have a hierarchy. Start at the top.
0: Uh, well, we'll have to keep it a bit brief and a bit concise. I think. So, more to the point, when I started uh, uh, doing research in, uh, in pet nutrition, I started because my supervisor was an orthopedic surgeon uh, on uh, work on nutrition and skeletal health. Uh, so, we. Now, looked...
1: was that Dr. Haswinkle? I've forgotten.
0: Yeah, it was. Who was your supervisor then? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. In, yeah. My supervisor in nutrition. Uh, he's a diplomat of the European College of Nutrition. Uh, de facto, because of his work on calcium and vitamin D. And our nutrition professor is an animal scientist, so that's why he couldn't be a diplomat of the college. But he also supports me in this pattern. Um, so I started working with an orthopedic surgeon. So, of course, nutrition had to be related to skeletal health. And one of my first papers was on looking at puppy milk replacer to see how much uh, calcium and vitamin D was actually in there compared to the claimed amounts and to have an idea on what breeders are giving to large breed puppies uh, regarding uh, these puppy milk replacers and it it turned out that they used quite high amounts and that there were quite significant amounts of vitamin D and calcium in those puppy milk replacers which might end up uh, getting in too high amounts which may cause skeletal diseases so that that was then the start for me uh, then then I moved on uh, on uh, of course other studies on all calcium and vitamin d uh, so we looked at uh, dogs with Cushing's disease uh, and we looked at the, the alterations in, in calcium metabolism there and it turned out that uh, in dogs there's actually not much going on so Uh, in people we see osteoporosis due to Cushing's disease and we couldn't demonstrate that in in dogs with Cushing's disease. So they have kind of local production of of growth hormone uh, and and IGF uh, which makes enough, uh, which supports enough uh, the bone metabolism to remain stable and to not develop osteoporosis. So that was an interesting finding and uh, that was actually data that was already collected by Mariana Trifonidou, who was one of my other uh, supervisors. We And um, she did a lot of work on vitamin D. And everyone was always disappointed that this work was not really appreciated uh, by the pet food industry. So she proved that excessive amounts of vitamin D might be harmful. Uh, but despite uh, her research being performed, this was not taken up. Uh, in, in several nutritional guidelines. So, when I worked on this
1: Let's talk about that a minute. So, that was done in the puppy. Um, so, it was excess vitamin D for growth, right? So, it's very different than, than vitamin D. Currently, we're talking about vitamin D and immune response and, and the, the, um, you know, the positive effects higher levels might have as, as compared to these uh, effects during the growth. Which, which, you know, when I was on the the USDA or the AFCO subcommittee, nutrition subcommittee, we we used those data to set a higher level of uh, vitamin D. But I think for puppies, I I, I th- I'm kind of what do you think about that puppy versus adult for for upper level, uh, you know, sort of safe and 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 not too high. Uh, so, of, of course, there's differences. Uh,
0: that's why we distinguish between growth phase and, and adults, of course. Um, so, yes, indeed, uh, it might be that uh, there's a difference in, in the need and also in, in the maximum level of, of vitamin D. We know, and, and I published a, a review paper together with some colleagues as well uh, on uh, uh, non-skeletal effects of vitamin D. And it has a lot of benefits if you... Uh, supplement vitamin D, especially in in deficiency we see a lot of uh, health issues occurring, so we think supplementation might be beneficial and there's some evidence for that as well uh, within certain diseases, so indeed uh, it might be that uh, adults have more benefit of of the uh, supplementation, whereas in puppies we tend to supplement too much
1: yeah Especially large breed, right? From your work and, and others, that uh, those large breed, uh, high high growing bones, they 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 have a they have a sensitivity to over over supplementation, don't they? Yeah, for sure.
0: Yeah, yeah. Their bone metabolism is is uh, very tight, so uh, they really have to develop in a short period of time uh, and really grow fast, and that's why. Easily gets out of balance, so you easily have too much or too little of certain nutrients to support that skeletal health. Yeah.
1: Well, what do you think about the sort of recent work that has been done in in phosphorus? Um, does that relate to work you've done with sort of calcium phosphorus balances, this influence of phosphorus on renal? Um, how, how do you how do you view that?
0: So, uh, calcium is very tightly regulated, uh, whereas phosphorus kind of uh, lags behind of that. So, it kind of follows calcium in a lot of pathways. Uh, So, I didn't do much research on the phosphorus side, but there is a lot of uh, relation with calcium work for sure. Uh, So, it's very interesting also to see the different forms in which phosphorus is administered that. That kind of makes a difference. So, that also makes you wonder yes. whether calcium in that particular form also might be different than calcium uh, in an inorganic way.
1: Well, I've really never thought about that. We usually use like calcium carbonate or dicalcium phosphate, um, pretty available. But, but you know, the phosphorus side, they've got everything from bone to, you know, phos- acid or something that really different uh, bioavailabilities.
0: Yeah, so there's way much more to it than the simplification we have with the nutrient requirement tables. And that's something which also relates to the paper I, I published on vitamin A and vitamin D interactions in cats. Um, so, yeah. Well, tell us about that. That's interesting. So we we designed that, that study actually based on... Uh, uh, very old data, uh, uh, skeletons that were digged up at uh, the Maas River here in the uh, Netherlands. Uh, and these were skeletons of monks and they had kind of spurs on their uh, uh, vertebrae. So they had uh, exostosis, a lot of bony development on the, the vertebrae, in cervical spine, and we know similar defects occur in cats that consume large amount of, of vitamin A. It's described in cats that are fed uh, solely on liver. Uh, so the idea was that these monks were, uh, were eating a lot of fish, a lot of salmon, and, and salmon liver, and then got a lot of vitamin A and then developed those exostosis. And we were trying to find the underlying mechanism and to see if in, in healthy Adult cats, we were able to evoke these lesions uh, by feeding them a lot of vitamin A. And we did that uh, just adding vitamin A. We had a control group, but we also had a group where we gave uh, extra vitamin D to the safe upper limit, and also a group where we added the same amount of vitamin D, which is actually present in raw liver, and the same amount of vitamin A present in raw liver to see whether the concentration matters and whether the interaction with vitamin D matters. And the funny outcome sure. of this study was actually that we did not see any skeletal lesions. Only the ones that had some osteoarthritic-like lesions developed more severe bony protrusions, but it was very minor. And the most significant findings were actually in the liver where we saw fibrosis occurring. Um, and that's something which is also known of vitamin A toxicity. But the fun fact here was that if you add vitamin D, uh, that uh, vitamin D had a protective effect on the fibrosis and also on the dosage. That's old. interesting. So with the lower level, it had a protective effect, whereas when you gave it in an excessive amount, it was no longer able to have this effect on the fibrosis. Yeah.
1: Pro- it's fascinating, isn't that sort of open the window into nutrition that that talks about this balance of nutrients? Like you said, we we so often uh, you know we, we try to make that balance, but there's a lot of things in play there, isn't there?
0: Yeah, and it's it's often overlooked or or maybe even ignored by by the industry because I thought that this could even be a game changer uh, to start looking more at, at nutrient interactions to redefine our, our nutrient requirement tables and things like that uh, but it, it takes time and now we see with the phosphorus work yeah. we also look at interactions with calcium. So it's, it's, it's going to change the research we are doing because traditionally we were mostly focused on preventing deficiencies whereas now we know that excessive amounts are not healthy either and that there are interactions. Yeah, but still a lot of it is unknown. So there's way more work to to be done. Yeah, by us. By so so you
1: have a good crewer ahead of you. <laughs> you, I overspoke I'm sorry. But I just wanted to smile as a nutritionist. That must be kind of exciting to see that those pathways open up and say, okay, we're we're there's still some things about you know minimum requirements we need to know, um, but but this idea of not too much and and the optimum space that's there's a lot of unknown there, isn't there? Yeah, it's absolutely true. Yeah. How do you think that relates to obesity? You know, we we've been, you know, so sure, of course, that over consuming calories is is um, is is the cause of excess adiposity, and yet, uh, can, you know, obesity is more complex than just you know, second law of thermodynamics. What do you think? Uh, How how have you approached it as a research scientist? So I did several
0: studies on uh, obesity, uh, looking at risk factors uh, like uh, obesity in show dogs, obesity in show cats uh, articles, where we kind of also looked at the breed standards, uh, what we think is, is normal or what we think is ideal might not be, the ideal for the health uh, so there's a lot of debate yes. going also on, on other diseases of course but I focused on, on obesity and uh, uh, prevention is very important so we looked at the effects of uh, prolonged giving uh, mother milk because that might also have an effect and we indeed could demonstrate in cats that if they suckle longer with their mother and they have a lower risk of overweight and obesity later in life So there's something there uh, as well. And there's a lot of psychology when it comes to management. So I wrote a nice paper with a pediatrician from Seattle uh, whom I met in London, actually, on a human obesity conference. And I was the only veterinarian talking there. And he was intrigued by the fact that I demonstrated so many similarities between childhood obesity and obesity in pets that he thought we should team up and write an article together and that's what we did so uh, we saw the similarities and we had a, have an idea of how we can can tackle the problem at least part of it um, because it's really tough uh, to get weight of animals because we have this 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 Strong connection with with our pets, just like with our children. We don't want to withhold them treats. Uh, we want them to to right. uh, because we enjoy seeing them eat because we think eating is healthy. But eating too much is not healthy anymore. And snacking snack should be something very special. But we we think our children and also our pets deserve treats every day, and that's not healthy anymore. So we kind of addressed that, that topic there with a lot of citations, quotes by uh, parents and pet parents uh, to substantiate our ideas and thoughts about that.
1: Well, if you would make recommendations, you know, sort of on a nutritionist side and then maybe go on to those recommendations for pet uh, parents, well, what would they be? How, how might we achieve that healthy pet we're hoping to find, maybe not finding <laughs>
0: so we need to be aware of of risk factors and to prevent animals from getting obese in the first place so keeping growth charts uh, doing body condition scoring on a regular basis and teach uh, pet owners how to do body condition scoring and what is healthy and what is unhealthy uh, can already make a huge difference because treating obesity is very difficult but Preventing it is easier. I will not say it's very easy. It's still tough uh, because it's always tempting to look at those puppy eyes or those kitten eyes and give them a bit more. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, we, we really need to prevent it from occurring. To make sure that we have less overweight and obese dogs and cats because it's really a, a huge problem. If you see the numbers of the pet obesity prevention group, uh, it's, it's enormous. It's more than half of our pets currently being overweight or obese in the Western world. So we really have to counteract that. And it's, in my opinion, and the focus should be mostly on, on prevention.
1: You know, I love that. that. That makes a lot of sense. What What sort of foods might you recommend for that prevention or in the treatment aid in the management of obesity?
0: So it's all about making healthy choices. So it's it's uh, choosing the, the, the right food in the right amounts. Uh, it's the same with snacking. Uh, we should use healthy snacks uh, preferably. Uh, and they should be uh, still appealing to the pet as well. Uh, so we, we tended to make diets as palatable as possible. So we put in a lot of fat and a lot of protein, uh, and especially fat obtains a lot of energy. So yeah, by making it also very highly digestible, very nutrient-dense, kibbles, uh, it's easier to overeat, uh, compared to a canned food, or if we look at like prey feeding, uh, then there's way more to it uh, it's way more volume uh, it's less easy to digest uh, so it stays longer in the stomach so all these mechanisms can help uh, maybe to prevent obesity from occurring so to keep the stomach more busy um, but yeah of course uh, feeding prey also has a risk of, of bacteria so that's uh, something we might need to mimic in a different way but uh, there are so many mechanisms involved this is just one one aspect of it. So maybe less energy, dense foods, more fiber, making sure it stays longer in, in the stomach,
1: it, it might be a, a, a way to go. Sure, that makes sense, right? And it has value in, in a number of ways. So, slower the nutrient passage and then and, 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 uh, the subsequent uh, bacterial uh, postbiotics are often uh, satiety GLP-1 goes up with, with those bypass fibers. Um, what do you think about sort of the other nutrients we might add, um, you know, carnitine or, you know, other sort of anti-obesity energy burning kind of things? What, do you have any opinion on them?
0: So uh, there have been studies done on, on the use of carnitine. Everyone wants to find the medication or the nutrient that will prevent obesity from occurring or that will really help to burn the fat off. Uh, and with carnitine uh, being part of the carnitine shuttle, so to shift then the, the fatty acids over the mitochondrial membrane into beta-oxidation uh, might be a way to go to. But you need to give very high amounts uh, before that mechanism becomes overt and you have to stimulate beta-oxidation because carnitine is produced in sufficient quantities with normal activity, uh, with normal food intake. So if there's extra demand for beta-oxidation because of fasting or because of strength exercise, then it's beneficial to add carnitine to maintain a better muscle-to-fat ratio within the body uh, but it it did not, uh, it was not proven to be effective to really speed up uh, weight loss. And that's what people often think, we we give something which helps to burn the fat, but it helps to maintain the muscle and to uh, reduce some of the fat. But the overall weight of, of uh, the overall rate of weight loss is actually the same. Hmm.
1: So then it, it comes back to a nutrition plus exercise. Uh, uh, maybe uh, some sort of you know exercise with your pet program seems like a, a positive thing. I you know in in many uh, human weight loss and, and and you know research I've done shows that benefit to have that uh, human animal exercise going on together.
0: Yeah, so exercise is a very important component of of weight loss programs, uh, especially because it improves metabolic health. So, it reduces risk of, of stroke in people. Uh, it reduces risk of insulin resistance. So, it has a lot of benefits. It it drains it the muscle. But to really burn the fat off, you really have to exercise a lot. So, the, the major contributor to weight loss uh, from an energy perspective still is changing uh, the, the food. You will achieve much more di- by dietary restriction to uh, reduce the amount of kcal's than to get that from doing exercise, and especially in uh, obese cats, try to make them move and really do strenuous exercise for a long time. That's that's a no go. Yeah,
1: yeah. No, I understand that, and we keep looking for that zero calorie cookie, don't we? Yeah, I'm finding it very easily. What other areas might we talk about? Uh, any any other? As you look forward in your nutritional program, what are you? What are you most interested in, in investigating? So, obesity
0: remains a, a very strong topic, uh, so it's really a problem, and also translational, so that to not only combat it in pets, but also in children, and, and to prevent obesity in, in people is, is something which is still very important and uh, has my attention. And. Yeah, I'm. I'm still regarded as one of the specialists when it comes to nutrition and skeletal health. So I do a lot of research on like new nutraceuticals on osteoarthritis, uh, uh, effects of calcium, phosphorus, vitamin D on on skeletal health, but also vitamin A uh, still has my interest, and there's still ongoing research
1: coming from me regarding those those nutrients. That sounds pretty exciting. I look forward to to that. Uh, let's talk a little bit about you know teamwork and and the value of the working together with people. What do you look for as someone who you might want to uh, bring onto your team or have as an associate? What, what would be characteristics that that look like that would be a success?
0: So uh, when I look at myself, uh, I wasn't a very good student, uh, so. I was kind of stubborn, enjoying. I don't life. Know
1: that. Do you even really. And,
0: and so, yes, uh, I, I had several retakes. So I was not the the, the brilliant guy uh, on on everything. And uh, we often tend to seek those people that really get the high marks, that always perform best in class. Uh, but for me, more important, and that was the same for nutrition, and why. I'm regarded uh, really a global expert on nutritionist because it really has my interest and I'm really enthusiastic about it. I'm curious. I want to know more. Uh, so these are the things I'm looking for. People that are enthusiastic, that really uh, find it very exciting to, to see what, what food can do. Um, so I, I, I tend to seek that uh, and that's more important than than the grades you've got. So that's an important message. That's very interesting. A lot of uh, people that want to become a specialist, they really think and they really struggle because they think they need the high grades and they need to have excellent performance in class to be able to achieve that goal. And uh, that's why we have high burnout rates and that's not needed. Uh, So you need to outperform the others by giving a strong motivation why you want to do this. If you grab me by that and uh, then I'm more than happy to support you and that's actually how I got my first PhD candidate and resident uh, who came from Italy for for an internship and uh, yeah he already had strong motivation for his internship and he, he demonstrated to me his eagerness to to learn more about this uh, during his internship and that's why in the end I supported him all the way through his residency
1: and, and PhD. You know, it sounds like good success. And I want to talk about it a little bit because, to me, it is such a fascinating thing that the nutrition that we, that our pets eat, actually changes the metabolism. You know, in the area of fatty acids where I, I've done much of my work, you know, the, the capacity exists to elongate and desaturate and, and to... to uh, to, to metabolize fatty acids and yet the fatty acids consumed are tremendously important in the subsequent metabolism and in, and sort of health of the pet and and that that's so exciting isn't it they, just to see how that that interaction of food and, and life happens what do you think
0: yeah and so yeah we, we when we look at the evolution of pet food of course uh, at, at first uh, pets were just, gradually entering our household uh, uh, or uh, were kept for a, a certain purpose and we just fed them something and they usually have to find part of their food by themselves and we gradually developed uh, in, in the recent past like kibbles and canned food and, and things like that and we made a lot of mistakes in the beginning by not knowing the true nutrition physiology of those animals, so we had like a taurine deficiency in cats, and uh, yeah, all these basic problems that we now are well aware of. But at that time point, we didn't know. We thought they were little humans and needed the same food as we did, but they are different. So this, this, this well, like
1: taurine. We we had taurine. I'm sorry I you, but was taurine so interesting? Because, you know, we had taurine in the foods. But we didn't have enough. And we didn't realize that, that taurine wasn't as bioavailable as it as we thought. <laughs> so yeah. suddenly, uh, the academics came in and said that, that was the University of California Davis, Quentin Rogers and, and his group. And, yeah, you know, it's just required. Just go do it. And, of course, we all did immediately just crash. Uh, everybody's adding taurine. <laughs> So, so there's there's
0: so much things that uh, you can learn from just looking at at nutrition physiology on uh, a lot of. I'm a comparative nutritionist, so I work with all kinds of species, also in the zoo, and it, it's often uh, you can find basic mistakes we make by getting them out of their normal environment and feeding them uh, something which we think is best, but nature always knows better uh, and. I'm intrigued by by exploring these things and and seeing miracles happen as soon as you restore that balance and and see those those animals recover and and prevent future animals from from getting ill. So that that's really intriguing. It's the same with the fatty acids, the the long chain uh, fatty acids, polyunsaturated fatty acids. They are not insufficient quantities in the diets often and. Uh, that's why supplementation is so successful in in managing ma- many diseases because there seem to be kind of a lack, and, and if we jump into that just by by giving a different diet or a supplement, we can restore the balance and make sure these these animals live longer and happier
1: lives. And that's what makes me get out of bed every day. <laughs> well, isn't that great? So, so if I could just push that a little bit, you know, so you're really saying that nutrition as it's developed from meeting the minimum requirements is now really looking at a balance of all the nutrients and ingredients present for that for that optimum health. Is that that what you're saying?
0: Yeah, we we need to find the optimum and there's way more to it than just looking at the nutrients. So it's it's also the interactions, it's it's getting everything in the in, in the proper uh proper amounts uh, yeah how do you say uh, it it all has to do with a a balance uh, and it should also be palatable uh, also because we now live differently with with our pets than we did in the past so we keep them indoors we keep them sometimes even in our beds Uh, we allow them to lick our faces that brings new challenges so we can't totally mimic what happened in nature. Uh, We altered our animals and the way we are handling them, so we need to find ways around it to make sure that they meet most of their needs, and and, and which also fits uh, the way we want them to be.
1: Well, we have changed heavily, and and clearly that optimum for an animal that is out hunting and and has a very short uh, life, uh, mostly built around reproduction. Is very different than our pets' lives, who are very long-lived and and um, often, you know, not reproducing. So, so it's it nutrients, of course, change, and an optimum has to change with it.
0: Yeah, you're you're totally right about that. Uh, most uh, species uh, live to survive uh, to the survival of the species, and not to the survival of the individual, and that's what we want for our pets. So I often tell people that really want to go natural, that if they have a dog or cat with like renal failure, uh, if we keep on feeding it the natural way, it will die quickly and uh, in a lot of uh, discomfort. So we better start now feeding something which is, in your opinion, more artificial, but it's more beneficial to your, your pets to make sure that it lives a longer happier life so indeed it's 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 customized also on on the purpose uh, why we are keeping the pets
1: now I love that view because the uh, the optimum uh, output for an animal in the wild is reproduction and and of course that healthy and and a long relationship we desire from our pets that's yeah, a different goal isn't it <laughs> it's, yeah. it's going to take different nutrition for sure yeah well, I often ask, and I wonder if you could, you could just talk about a little bit, do you have a text that you like, that you think, you know, if, if I'm reading, I want to think, Dr. Corbell, I can't see you individually, but I, I'd, I'd read maybe something you recommend or even that you wrote as a nutrition text. What would, what would you recommend?
0: Well, that, that, that's a tough one uh, because uh, a lot of text is already outdated as soon as it's published. Uh, so, yeah, sometimes
1: it, it... Do you prefer the literature then to, to file that most recent yes. work if you're working with students? Yes,
0: I, yeah. I always tell my students to be critical and to look at recent uh, literature uh, because there's a lot of changes uh, ongoing in the field. So if you want to be updated, uh, then you need to go really in- into scientific articles. Of course, there's very nice textbooks, and there are several ones, and some companies have really invested uh, a lot in uh, having a lot of uh, state-of-the-art uh authors there uh, to to write excellent chapters on on the current uh, insights we have at, at the time uh, they wrote the book uh, on certain topics and they might still be up to date for many of them. So I, I really like those, uh, those textbooks because they give backgrounds. Uh, some of them are more focused on the, the clinical aspects, others more on giving a, a total overview. So there's a lot of uh, textbooks to choose from depending on uh, what you are looking for. So very practical information or more background. And if you want to be totally up to date or have your own individual opinion, which is very important for my students as they are in academia, I always tell them to, to do your own research and then come with your own opinion, which might even be different than my opinion. But that's okay. That's how it goes in, in research.
1: Well, it's it's a general uh, truth of science, isn't it that 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 it's not conflict, but that that comparison and 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 interaction really sharpens the whole group and and pulls us along, doesn't it? If we all if we all thought that uh, we had all the answers all the time, we wouldn't be doing research. Yep, I, I think. We've had a great conversation. Thank you, Dr. Corbet, for, for your insights. It's sure uh, been a pleasure for me. I wonder if you have any last just thoughts as you think about pet nutrition and the overview, the 10,000 foot view, what would you, what would you say? Where are we, Where are we headed? What's, uh, what, is there new ideas out there, new ways of, of looking at pets and their nutritional needs? But what's your what's your view? So
0: uh, my view is that uh, there's there's still a lot of challenges in in nutritional management of of pets, uh, and that might also uh, translate to people. So pets can be very good models uh, for also uh, human diseases. So I think we have a lot of things to learn from each other and look at species differences. Uh, It's still such an exciting field. There's so much more. Uh, We we still need to learn to totally understand uh, nutritional needs, the effects of nutrients on metabolism, how we can change things for the good, also for the different purposes that we are keeping the animals full. So, yeah, a bright future for for pet nutrition, also for nutrition uh, as a whole.
1: Well, thank you, and thank you for your work in pushing that future, uh, future illumination out. So uh, well, I'll look forward to it. Maybe we'll get a chance to talk again. I hope to, I hope to have that opportunity, if, if you can find time. For well, sure. Thank you so much.